Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So I have been doing this show now for just about three months. We're coming up on three months. This is the 26th episode. And I'll tell you what, I never thought I would get to this point. I did not imagine this show going to 26 episodes or three months or, you know, at this point, kind of having no end in sight, which is a little scary. I remember when this show launched in May, thinking that things were going to clear up, that we were going to bend that curve, the cases were going to go down, that all the efforts we would have made staying home through March and April were worth it. And so I set an aggressive schedule of doing two shows a week, every Monday and every Thursday, thinking that by June, by July, people aren't going to want to talk about the quarantine anymore. The quarantine will be old news. And here we are at 162,000 deaths, which I, I, I just cannot wrap my mind around that number. I remember early on in the show talking about the death toll. And back then, I think it was 70 or 80,000. And now we're more than double that. In the short three months that this show has been on the air, 5 million total cases reported in the U.S. right now. And I can't help but think that a lot of the blame for this lies at the feet of the administration of Donald Trump and the people that are in charge, abdicating responsibility, deferring to the states, having 50 responses to this pandemic instead of one. And by the way, the news came out over the weekend that New Zealand has now gone 100 days without a single case of coronavirus. 100 days. And we're here just adding, what, thousands of cases every day. So I'm, I'm in a place of despair right now. And today's guest, I was hoping, <laughs> would give me reason to hope. And I think we get there. But uh, today's guest is uh, Sarah Kenzier. And she is an amazing author that I've been following for a little while now. She wrote a book, came out about two years ago, called The View from Flyover Country. And she's a St. Louis-based author, so that's part of where the title comes from. And this book was a collection of essays that she had written over the last several years that dealt with all sorts of topics, from employment, race, media, higher education. And it was really painting a picture of an America in despair a place that was not great, a place that was down on its luck, and a place that had this narrative of an American dream that really hadn't been true in a generation or more. And I grew up with that very optimistic view of America, just thinking of the American dream and, you know, the idea that we were going to be better off than our parents, we were going to be wealthier, we were going to have more opportunity, and just starting to wonder if this country was really delivering on that. And Sarah paints a picture of exactly how this country has not delivered on that. But I'll tell you, her book was inspirational too, because you leave that and say, okay, this is where we are. How do we get to where we want to be then? So in that regard, it was a positive. But it's, it's a sad, depressing read because it paints a picture that I don't think the national media really has of exactly what's going on in the middle of this country. And, you know, I have, I have roots in the Midwest, I guess, I grew up in Cleveland, but right after high school, my parents moved to Kansas City, and I lived there with them for about a year, but it's still where I go home, quote-unquote, to visit. It's where my sister lives, my parents live, and, you know, in the year that I lived there, this was around the time when Bush was up for re-election in 2004, 2003, 2004. I remember there were a lot of people that I encountered that wanted to re-elect Bush because they they had this feeling that he was some sort of chosen one. And I mean that in a religious sense, that Bush was some kind of savior because he was on the side of the religious right. And that freaked me out. I never quite understood that. But since the time that I lived there, Missouri has gone progressively more red. So the view from flyover country really helped me understand exactly what's going on there. But more recently, Sarah has been known as one of the people that sort of predicted the rise of Donald Trump. She studied authoritarian regimes, primarily in Uzbekistan, but sort of across the, uh, the former Soviet states, and really understands what it takes for an authoritarian government to take hold. She co-hosts the podcast Gaslit Nation with Andrea Chalupa, 
And she has a new book that just came out in April called Hiding in Plain Sight. And this book really kind of lays out all of the connections that Trump has that, again, have been kind of explored maybe in pieces and parts, an article here, an article there in the national media. But nobody's really painted the full picture. Nobody's been able to tie it all together in the way that I think Sarah does in this new book. You know, Epstein is involved, Jeffrey Epstein, Russian oligarchs, the Russian mafia, political operatives like Paul Manafort, Roger Stone. Sarah ties them all together. The quote that she talks about a lot, actually, the kind of central premise of the book, the Trump administration is a transnational crime syndicate masquerading as a government. And she backs it up with evidence. So I loved her first book. I read the second book. And I want to talk to her about it. But I also wanted to understand where we were headed. And for her, as an anthropologist, kind of studying these authoritarian regimes, how bad could it get? What could this country look like in November or next January or in 2023? And so it's an interview that it bums me out, some of this stuff. But there is some hope in it, just knowing that there are people like Sarah out there that are calling things out for what they are, that are trying to get the attention of everybody and and get them to to listen to this and and focus on it. It makes me realize that we're in for a rocky ride and uh, we've got to be really vigilant and we got to buckle up and pay attention because this is going to get a lot worse, I think, before it gets a lot better. I got to tell you too, this interview took place last week. We recorded it on August 6th. So when she mentions Cori Bush winning the Democratic nomination in Missouri and referencing that that was only a few days old, obviously now that news is about a week old. And obviously this was also before Trump signed the executive order over the weekend that uh, changed the unemployment benefit, lowered the unemployment benefit, but extended it. But there's questions about whether or not he even can do that. And like with a lot of his executive actions, it feels like it's more headline-driven than substance-driven. And, you know, I don't really expect a lot of people are going to see a benefit out of that. But who knows? So that's sort of the context for this conversation. Some of those actions hadn't happened yet, and uh, that's why we don't reference them at all. But here it is, my interview with Sarah Kenzier. I want to start just sort of by asking about how the last, I guess, five months or so have been treating you. How has this quarantine been for you? Oh, God. I mean, the quarantine itself, you know, it is what it is. It's not that bad for me personally. I worked from home anyway. Um, It's obviously been an adjustment having my children uh, home, but it's more just the crisis itself, the death toll, uh, the refusal of Congress to act in any way to stop it, the fact that we're heading into the school year, and I think that's going to be absolutely disastrous. So it's, you know, it's just incredibly sad, and that's been the worst thing about it, much more for the world in general than for me as an individual. Yeah, I was was worried about this conversation only because I love both of your books, but they both kind of terrified me just in terms of like, (laughs) there's a lot more going on than... I think a lot of us realize or, you know, maybe it's there, you know, your new book is hiding in plain sight. And so it's there, but a lot of us are just kind of choosing not to see it. But, you know, as you talk about sort of the the response to COVID, like, and I want to get into to Trump and all this um, as we go through this, but in your studying his personality and, and his administration and all that, how predictable do you think this response to the pandemic has been? Does it surprise you at all just how how incompetent it's been, I guess? No, I mean, it hasn't surprised me at all. Um, and I don't think it's incompetence. I think it's malice. And that's mm. something that I've been stressing uh, from the beginning and trying to warn people about since March is that they are going to intentionally make this worse. Uh, Trump has a lifelong history of viewing any kind of catastrophe, particularly a a humanitarian catastrophe, as an opportunity for himself, Um, you know, as a a profit motive. This goes back to any financial crash. You know, he's outright said he was happy about the economic collapse in 2008 because people like him did well. When 9-11 happened, his gut reaction upon witnessing 
facing that attack was now my buildings look taller. He's talked, you know, as a as a quote in the book in 2014 about how you know America will be great again if there is total economic collapse, if there are riots in the streets. He's talked about his utter apathy toward mass death. You know that you'll read that 400,000 people died, and he just doesn't feel anything. He doesn't care, um, and he's surrounded by people who feel and act in the same way, whether corporate raiders like uh, Steve Mnuchin and Wilbur Ross or uh, individuals like Jared Kushner uh, that seem to share this sociopathic uh, view of the world and, you know, has been very instrumental in managing, quote unquote, this uh, crisis. It's it's very frightening. And so it was always on those uh, people of conscience who oppose Trump, who have power um, in our institutions to work around him, whether, you know, Dr. Fauci or the uh, House Democrats. And they have largely failed. And it's not like this is an easy task. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's an incredibly difficult task. But they needed to expect Trump to behave this way because it's, it's completely consistent with all of his past behaviors. They needed to expect him to do things like continue to dismantle the CDC, which they had already started doing years ago. And it's like... You know, we're now in August. I mean, they need to figure out he's not going to change, but the American people need solutions and help and support. This is an, an existential threat, yeah. and it's here, and they're just they're not on top of it. Some of that, I feel like, is just the House Democrats in particular, but sort of a lot of Washington sort of still coming to the table with the expectation that that Trump is a normal politician and that he plays by the same rules that everybody has always played by when, in fact, he, he clearly has no respect for precedent or, you know, just kind of the, the, the way things have always been handled. Like, in not, in not recognizing that, does that handicap us in a way? Oh, absolutely. You know, and he is there to destroy us. He is there, uh, you know, as part of a broader operation to strip America down and sell it off for parts. And it's not like he's the mastermind of these things. You know, he's aided from multiple sides, uh, whether foreign actors like the Kremlin or Netanyahu or MBS or other autocrats with which he's aligned or the Republican Party. Uh, and this is, you know, in many ways, the culmination of what began in the Reagan era in terms of destroying the federal government, destroying basic uh, public services. This was all out there. And there is an utter refusal, uh, you know, to acknowledge how sadistic it is and also how possible it is. And I think that's some of it is there's an element of pride, especially for um, institutional actors from prior administrations. And this is for both parties, yeah. you know, Republican, Democrat, whatever. Um, and also people worked in law enforcement intelligence and so forth, they don't want to admit that they failed uh, to prevent this. You know, this is a, was a very obvious threat. And they, they don't want to admit that our institutions were fundamentally weak and fundamentally flawed, um, because then you have to deal with their own negligence, their own uh, complicity. You know, I, I think at this point, it's better to just be honest. Like, if you don't admit uh, how this came to pass, there's no way uh, to try to reverse it. And the longer it goes on, the more difficult it is to fix. And so, yeah, it, it, I don't understand it. I mean, there's been so many studies of Trump, you know, like what drives him, what motivates him, like what's lurking in that dark mind. You know, yeah. you see Mary Trump's book doing so well. That to me um, is almost like a boring question, because what I can't figure out are the people surrounding and enabling him, you know, the uh, people in government, people in the media, people who fail to recognize him for the threat that he is. And why are they so hesitant to speak out? You know, why are they so afraid of being viewed as alarmist or hysterical? Like, why does that fear trump the fear of what will happen to the most vulnerable Americans and to America as a whole under his rule? That, to me, has always been the greater question and so that's interesting to me. Like I, you know, as you know, I'm an anthropologist by training, sure. and I wish somebody would study this. I wish they would study um, these oblivious elites I, or sometimes complicit elites. I think that would be very interesting. And that was always the question, you know, in the past when I would look at how fascist regimes came to power. Hitler wasn't as interesting to me as the, you know, quote unquote, good Germans, as the people who just stood by and let it happen or denied its severity. 
that is the is the real crisis. That's right. the thing people need to understand and change. Well, so like for me, this was obvious in 2015 and 2016. Like there was never a moment where I felt a strong urge to take him seriously as a candidate or, you know, even after he got the nomination, I was like, well, you know, Hillary has all this momentum and there's no way, you know, people are, are generally good. Like I want to be an optimist and I guess she won, you know, 3 million more votes than him, but he, he comes into power and now still, you know, three and a half years later, there, it's just complete gibberish coming out of his mouth. And there are people defending that like you, you know you talk about the good germans i guess like the the people that still support him what do you think is driving that where where is that desire coming from i mean his his supporters aren't a monolith and at this point i think his support has diminished um a great deal because i yeah. do think there are people who thought that basically he wouldn't be able to get away with what could be the worst case scenario and so they were willing to overlook all kinds of things his over racism his cruelty uh his ties to foreign dictatorships his lifelong history of financial crime um you know and they somehow just thought it was going to work out Obviously, that's not the case. I mean, we're all, you know, we're having this conversation quarantined during our homes, in our homes uh, during a pandemic that has run rampant in this country, uh, in this country alone, because they, you know, they want this kind of outcome. You know, and I live in Missouri. I live in a state that did vote for him. And I've noticed, you know, within a year, like his support was going down. They felt that essentially since 9-11, but especially after 2008, uh, you know, the country had gone crazy. There was no economic stability that, you know, wages had either stagnated or gone down and their bills were too high. And, you know, the hyper partisanship was crazy. They basically were uh, to folks who um, were just extremely susceptible to the propaganda of a strong man. They cast their vote, um, you know, for that. And I, you know, obviously do not think that is a good reason to vote for anyone. And I don't think that these traits are things that anyone should overlook. But then, you know, within a year, they saw this was not heading towards any kind of, quote, normal objective. Um, you know, they basically think he, he's insane. Yeah. And then there are some, of course, who still like him. They like him for all of his worst qualities. You know, they like the xenophobia. They like the bigotry. They like the cruelty. And we've also seen these kind of offshoot cults, things like QAnon uh, popping up. But overall, you know, I, I said this for years before I even knew who the Democratic candidate would be. Um, you know, I think any Democrat in a fair and free election would be Trump. And my concern has always been that there's not going to be a free and fair election. And that's still my concern now. Yeah. And so what do you think it looks like in November? Like, do do we have an election that is rigged in some way? Or does the election get delayed? <laughs> or is it some combination of both of the like, just sort of reading the tea leaves that are in front of us right now? Where do you think we're headed with all this? Yeah, I mean, that's it's difficult to say because any of the things you just listed are possible because the wild card in this scenario is the coronavirus and how much it's spread um, and the actual concerns for public health uh, having to be considered. I mean, they're, they're obviously going to, you know, and they are using uh, the pandemic for political gain and to try to, you know, either delay the election or to rig it in their favor. Um, you know, they've been attacking the Postal Service, uh, you know, since the spring. They've been trying to convince people that voting by mail is voter fraud. These were all just extensions of the same tactics that they were using in 2016. Uh, and along with that is, you know, Trump's insistence that if Biden wins, he will not concede. He will yeah. not necessarily step down. He said the same thing uh, in 2016. And then alongside him was Roger Stone saying, yeah, you know, if Trump doesn't win, there's going to be a bloodbath. And we yeah. saw a lot of the other problems in 2016. We saw domestic voter suppression because of the partial repeal of the VRA. We obviously saw a great deal of um, foreign interference. And we saw, you know, hackable machines. That's something nobody wants to discuss, but right. it's finally being discussed now, four years later, when it's too late to try to fix things. They're admitting that, yes, the votes might have actually been changed. It's not just a matter of they hack databases. They might have changed the actual vote tallies in the end. Like, this may be a completely illegitimate president, which leads to all sorts of questions about, well, then what do you do with his appointments? What do you do with the courts? So on and so forth. 
it's disastrous. So the only thing I can kind of predict with certainty for November uh, is violence and protracted legal battles, I think. So, you know, violence on the street, possibly also state violence, because we've seen more of that yeah. recently. Um, you know, this use of the military at the protests and also these unmarked paramilitary groups that he's deployed. I've always been afraid for this time period, the time between November and January. That was always the most dangerous time, and now we have added a, you know, freaking pandemic right. into the mix, um, which complicates things with George. So, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, if I had a bunker, I'd be in it at this point. I'll just leave it at that. I'll vote by mail for my bunker. Right. Uh, the thing that I guess kind of gets me, talking about, like, rigging the election, though, like, I think about autocrats and they, you you said in the book that they like elections, right? They like to come out with a 95%, you know, or whatever, just a huge landslide victory, whether or not it's a legitimate one. Like, I don't know how in the current climate he ends up with something like that. Like, I just wonder, it, w- would he rig it to get to 47 or 48% of the vote? Is that enough? Just, you know, I guess you're saying in 2016, that, you know, that 70,000 vote margin or whatever he had in 2016 was enough to get him in, in office. Maybe it could be as something as small as that. But I just, it doesn't feel as autocratic as, you know, a, a dictator winning a, a huge, overwhelming majority. Yeah. I mean, it's one of these things where back in 2016, Trump and his team were trying to keep up some kind of pretense of democratic legitimacy. You know, that's one of the reasons I think the margin was so small and that, you know, I'm assuming they did uh, tamper with votes in various ways. They did it in a way where they just, you know, raised it by a small amount per state, very difficult to contest legally, very difficult to detect without a vote audit. They then made it so that nobody asked for or got a vote audit. We don't even know what happened. Now we're in a different era where they are much more overt um, about their autocratic ambitions. They're not, you know, hiding it. Um, He's committed a multitude of crimes for four straight years. He's been impeached. And you know, he, he's being open that about his utter disdain for the American public, you know, who he's willing to let die, who is, you know, soldiers that he's willing to let get killed uh, in Afghanistan with the aid of Russia. Um, you know, there's no secrets anymore. The only kind of secrets are the ones that I think people tell themselves to make them feel better. The secrets are lies. Like, they'll be like, oh, this can't be that bad, or we can't have an anti-American, you know, traitorous president. It's like, well, you do, and you have an aspiring dictator. And so, yes, they rig it, by how much is a decent question, because we'll kind of know how confident they are um, in the lack of opposition by what that number is. Because, you know, like you said, and as I said before, dictators usually love these overwhelming margins and and they know that people know that it's fake they know that people you know don't believe that they actually got like 90 or 95 percent of the vote it's a way of flaunting impunity it's a way of flaunting power and saying you know your vote doesn't matter you are going through the motions and now you are just an object to be displayed in my propaganda and that's something i think trump himself will find very, very tempting. Uh, He would love to have that kind of outcome. I think the people surrounding him, like Mitch McConnell um, and other more traditional but still evil uh, Republicans, probably don't want something that flagrant um, and that overt. They might try to still kind of keep it in the realm of, oh yeah, our democracy is a legitimate election. But I don't know, because they faced so little institutional, powerful opposition for four years that they may just think, well, you know, what the hell, let's have fun with it. Yeah, that's so interesting what you were saying, too, just about sort of the knowing that it's a lie, but not caring, like really liking that perception. And it just it feels so consistent with his personality, you know, going back to the 80s of just, you know, I have the, the glitziest casinos and the most beautiful women and the tallest buildings and, you know, the longest limousine like there, there's just a piece of that kind of bullshit that like, you know, I, I don't know that that's just that's baked into his personality in a way, I guess. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he's not unique in that way. Like He's a con artist and yeah. he's a very good one. And he's one that unfortunately was born into a very wealthy, very connected family that gave him uh, the means to carry out all sorts of hideous plots for numerous decades. And then, of course, he had people like Roy Cohn helping perfect him. But, you know, 
know, he has no shame. He has never had any shame. He has never cared about getting caught. He just cares if he's punished. You know, the one thing he, he is much smarter about than people give him credit for is he knows who to surround himself with to fill in the gaps of his own knowledge. He knows which lawyers to pick. He knows which bankers to pick. He knows who will, you know, stay in secret and keep his own stuff quiet. He's very good at that. Uh, he's not bothering to learn that himself because he knows he has others in his corner to take care of it for him. Um, and that's one of the greatest threats because people rarely look deeply at those backstage actors. You know, one of the few cases where one was brought to justice was Paul Manafort. But, yeah. you know, Roger Stone just walked free. The rest are getting let out. It's really shameful. Well, and I, I think, too, about like, uh, you know, William Barr or something like that or, or Steve Mnuchin, like, What's in it for them? <laughs> like that that's the thing that kind of always baffles me, I guess, is like why why be complicit in this? Yeah, well, I mean, morally, it's a, a baffling question. Like, if <laughs> yeah. you have any kind of morals or ethics, you think, my God, why would you want to be involved in this? Right. But, you know, the answer, pragmatically, is very simple. It's just, it's money and power, yep. uh, and they can't get enough of it. I mean, I, I personally don't grasp it. Like, I don't grasp how anyone becomes, like, a multimillionaire or, you know, God forbid, a billionaire and doesn't feel constant guilt about that and a kind of, you know, a sense of obligation to the rest of humanity. Um, right. But they don't have these sorts of feelings. And this is how they've operated for a long time. It's an extension, you know, for Mnuchin of his, uh, you know, Wall Street financial background. Uh, they know they can get away with it. I think it's a power trip. And I think also, you know, for many of them, they get to a certain point where they've been complicit in these crimes and in these criminal networks for so long that it's pretty much impossible to leave. You know, it's, it's a mafia. You know, yeah. I mean, it literally is a mafia. It's connected to the Russian mafia. But people tend to not see it that way because it looks so establishment. It looks so polished. You know, these are guys in suits and ties. These are guys with fancy degrees. And people think of the mafia as something, you know, like some guy sitting in a New Jersey, you know, yeah. corner shop, like the Sopranos, ready right, to totally. like whack you with a baseball bat. But, you know, it's, it's not that. It's merged with high finance, especially in the last 20 years. And so that's what's in it for them. Um, you know, I, I don't understand, like, the interior life of these sorts of people. Like, why do they need to take it so far? Like, if you already have so much, why do you always need more? I don't get it. Like, that—that that is something that just on a personal level, it just baffles me. Yeah. And, and to sort of step on all the people around you to get there, like, I mean, just talking about sort of this time and, you know, unemployment benefits not being extended or, you know, seeing the lines at, at food pantries and stuff like that, like to just, I don't know, to see that level of suffering and to not feel some some urgency to do something, some responsibility to do yeah. something. Yeah, I don't get it. There's something missing, you know, in all these people, like they're just, they're soulless. Like, I, I don't know how to fathom it because you see other wealthy people like abigail disney i think is a good example who who use their money for good who, yeah. who do feel some sort of ethical quandary about being born into um their position you know you see her trying to sort of figure that out publicly but this group they're bereft of all humanity and it's become so clear during the pandemic that that's the case you know i i always envisioned that there would be some sort of big, you know, infrastructure collapse around late 2019, early 2020. I mean, that's one of the reasons the book is so weird. You know, I wrote it in 2019, yeah. but I wrote about the future in the past tense. Like I wrote about, you know, losing the ability to travel around freely. Like there's a line about that in the past tense. And my editor noted it and she's like, you know, you need to change the tense here. And I'm like, no, because by April, we're not going to be able to just drive around and, you know, do things like we used to. We're going to have a lot of restrictions. And she's like, what are you talking about and i'm like i just i just know like they're building up to something yeah. before the election but just you know to consolidate power i did not obviously know it was going to be a pandemic i thought it was going to be something like a, a grid hack you know power grid infrastructure attack or something one of the things i feared about this is that they are so sadistic and that they don't feel anything um you know when they see masses of people suffering and dying and quite a few of them uh in this administration you know they base their policy on for example the rapture you know that's how right. mike pompeo and mike pence uh and bill barr that's how uh they see the future they see the future as ending and they often want to accelerate that process that's something that steve bannon has talked about and then you just see lots of 
um, proclamations of genetic superiority from people like Trump or from Kushner, uh, where they seem to feel that some people are just born better than others and the rest, uh, you know, deserve to suffer and die. This is almost always constructed along racial and ethnic lines put that together and so that's uh scary you know the pandemic threw me for a loop because yeah. i'm not like a pandemic expert and i didn't know that that was going to happen and uh you know as i was sort of thinking of the ramifications of it it was uh, overwhelming to think what exactly they could do with this and how they could use it as a pretext um to consolidate power yeah they got to the ends that you were expecting just maybe not through the means that you were anticipating there. Yeah. But you're talking about like the rapture and that kind of stuff. I've been fascinated really since the Bush years, I guess, of sort of that that intersection of of religion and conservative politics. And to me it it reads as very false. It it reads as, you know, peddling what what supporters want to hear to gain votes. But like does doesn't Mike Pence really believe at his core, you think the, these kind of religious principles, or is that just is that an act to get people to to go along with what they want to do? I, I think it varies by individual. I think Pence, that to me seems like someone who believes this. To you know, Jeff Charlotte's book, the family uh, is helpful in understanding this uh, in terms of the evangelicals, um, but it's not limited to them. There's a lot of you know, religious extremism and, uh, you know, people proclaiming that they're the chosen one or that this is their destiny, all these sorts of things. Um, you know, with Bill Barr, I, I tend to think a lot of it is very calculated, um, that it doesn't particularly have a, you know, theological motivation. I think that that's just a lot of bullshit he, he puts out because his actual interests are, you know, just incredibly cruel and sadistic and he needs something to polish them up. But yeah, that whole history um, is interesting. And it's something that I think it's getting explored more as a serious threat to national security. Now, um, I think it's something that people were reluctant to criticize, because of course, you just have, you know, ordinary people who are just, uh, you know, religious believers and in the same uh, churches or, you know, branches of different religions and they haven't done anything wrong and you know you don't want to paint with a broad brush but it's difficult i think so the media especially has been hesitant to kind of do deep dives into this nexus of you know religion and power uh in the u.s they i think because they're one afraid of offending people but it's also that same american exceptionalism where they're like oh no you know that's how the taliban operates that's how Mm -hmm. you know other countries may do things but we always had a separation of church and space it's like you know we we never exactly did (laughs) um you know and we obviously have a manipulation of religious rhetoric um being used for extremely uh dangerous measures now yeah you talk about sort of the media's role in all this, too. And, and that was part of sort of my reaction to reading Hiding in Plain Sight was sort of like, I feel like I knew pieces and parts of the story, but you were sort of the first one to give the full picture of, of what was happening. Like, why is it so hard? I, I, I guess I felt like that was a reporter's job to like, these are things putting the, this context together, sort of in the way Julie Brown did with the with the Epstein reporting of like, here's all the facts look at this. And it was sort of undeniable. Why hasn't the media done that relative to Trump or to some of these other things? Like, it just feels like it's been kind of an abdication for five years now of of deep investigation into what they're up to. Yes, it's very disappointing. Um, and one of the things that was so clear to me as I was writing Hiding in Plain Sight and researching it was just how much journalism has deteriorated since the 1980s and 90s. Because a lot of my best sources for investigative reporting were articles about Trump and his cohort written from the 80s and 90s onward by people like Wayne Barrett or David K. Johnston, you know, who are doing work very similar to what uh, Julie K. Brown is doing now. Yeah. Um, you know, very demanding, rigorous work that requires you put all of these pieces together that often leaves you with your life at risk. Uh, there's just incredible reluctance to do that. You know, and I go through in the book some of the things that contributed to this. You know, journalism as an industry began to collapse around 2000. The advertising funding went away, switched to digital, you know, while it was beneficial in many respects for just freedom of speech and opening up 
discourse to a broader variety of people. You know, it came with a, a loss of money and with journalism becoming this very elitist profession where you really need to have inherited wealth or some other source of wealth to get a foot in the door. And it also came became consolidated in just a few coastal cities, like in New York, D.C., L.A., San Francisco, I guess Chicago, uh, kind of, for the Midwest. But, you know, local media was gutted. Yeah. And a particular type of journalist uh, succeeds. I don't even know how to define this as success. <laughs> what they're doing <laughs> is not journalism. It's PR. But, you know, they, they get employment. In these type of scenarios, they're the type who doesn't need to really earn money. They can live off what their family has if they, you know, live in this very expensive city making like $35,000 a year or doing an unpaid internship or whatever. And they tend to be conformists. They tend to not question power. They want proximity to power. That's their goal. And so when you want that, you know, and you really see this with like the D.C. access journalism types, then you're not even thinking of the well-being of the public. Like, that's not a consideration that they even have, even though that's the fundamental consideration that any journalist should have. It's like, why are you in this field if you're not questioning things, if you're not functioning as a check on authority? But they seem to view that as incredibly subversive. Like, they don't understand why I do what I do. And I feel like I'm, I'm just doing the type of journalism that people have done for, like, a couple centuries that suddenly you're seeing as this kind of renegade, you know, outrageous thing. It's very weird to me. And I think it comes in part from that um, the narrowness of professional opportunities where people are so terrified of being left out, of uh, not getting a foothold, of, you know, I don't know, failing to rise to the ranks, all this crap, that they're just not doing their job. And that is the worst type of journalist to have around um, during a, you know, rising autocratic regime where you really need to be brave and you need to do uh, rigorous, painstaking, sometimes very monotonous work um, in terms of, you know, interrogating all these sources and documents and so forth. Yeah. And I wonder, too, just thinking about sort of this you know, the access to these people and, you know, so much of what we understand about how the White House functions are these not off the record, but, you know, people that don't want to they want to be anonymous sources, I guess, you know, so many stories are sourced anonymously, according to a senior White House official or, you know, somebody with inside knowledge of, of the function of this. But like, you don't know, you know, is this Jared Kushner? <laughs> is this, you know, Jared Kushner's assistant assistant? Like, just who who is the person doing this leaking? And is the journalist actually following up when they're reporting this or are they taking, you know, an email or something at face value and printing that as a story like that? That sort of bothers me in all this is just understanding the source and the motive, I guess. And, and has it been vetted? No, I mean, that's been a, a frustrating thing. because I think what we need above all is transparency now. Uh, we need complete transparency. We never had it going into the election and we you know, obviously haven't had it since. And I don't see the point of maintaining these kind of access connections or writing these books that come out kind of too late to have an impact on the crisis at hand. I mean, yeah. John Bolton's book is certainly an example of that. Uh, it's it's pointless. And it is uh, frustrating because they're still playing this game, you know, and I assume it's in part to please their corporate masters. You know, I put a lot of this at the hands of editors and CEOs instead of the reporters. You know, I know of some reporters who wanted to do deep dive investigative work about the Trump administration or wanted to, you know, uh, challenge certain assumptions about it. They get struck down um, and there really isn't like a free media in that sense. It's mostly just a kind of appraisal of, uh, you know, well, what will happen to me if I do this? And then they, they go along with the Trump administration's objectives. But yeah, the anonymous sources, I mean, my God, if you're dealing with Donald Trump, you should really be on the ball here. Like, this is a guy who for decades would call up newspapers, you know, as himself yeah. and be like, you know, I'm John Barron or I'm on some other pseudonym and give gossip. And he's also somebody who would trade dirt about others, uh, you know, in exchange for them laying off of him. He, that's his deal. You know, that is his, the art of his deal. Like, he actually does know how to do that. So journalists should have gone into this environment hyper aware of this track record. But instead, I felt like they went in almost jubilantly. Like, they were like, oh, yay, you know, we're going to get, you know, such wild, outrageous stories. We're going to get dirt on all these other people, maybe on the Democrats. I mean, they completely fell for that. 
uh, with Hillary Clinton and with, you know, what Steve Bannon did with Clinton Cash and the New York Times and so forth. And so, yeah, it's just shameful. They're not operating in pursuit of the truth and they're not operating uh, to serve the public. Yeah, no, definitely. I want to ask, too, about something that was in your book, just sort of about the 2018 elections in Missouri. And it, it had a an echo of what's the matter with Kansas <laughs> to me of sort of uh, medical marijuana being passed, minimum wage increase being passed, but then which are kind of thought of as, as progressive issues, but then historic Republicans being elected into office. And like, what do you think it is? Is is there just, I don't know, a cultishness or something around how you identify? Like people seem willing to back issues separate from how they back candidates. It's complicated because I think there's, you know, less tribalism in a way around political parties. Like people switch parties, you know, all the time. I think I mentioned in the book that in the governor's race in in 2016, the two governors had both been once in each other's parties and switched from Democrats to Republicans. Most people, including myself, are independents. You don't need to be in a party to vote in the primary. So a lot of people are like, well, why bother registering? But, you know, I, I think what it is is, it's the, uh, I don't know, sometimes there are just low quality candidates, but we suffer from a lot of the election, you know, uh, integrity issues that other states face, voter ID and restrictions, um, it, and so on and so forth. We also, I'm just thinking kind of uh, about McCaskill, like, you know, she's an example of somebody who ran a, a bad campaign, but also was contending with dark money, you know, or the dark money capital of the U.S. and an incredible propaganda surge where, when people are voting here, I think they often genuinely do not know what the candidate they're voting for believes or stands for, because mm. they're getting their information from Fox, they're getting it from right-wing radio, they're getting it from Trump. And so it's, it's not like they're low-information voters. Like, they're high-information, but it's bad information. Like, bad is in, inaccurate. And I think, you know, that, that goes hand-in-hand hand with what I said before about media um, being gutted, you know, and a lot of these papers being bought out, um, you know, by corporations that aren't located anywhere in Missouri, and they just pump uh, right-wing garbage. And the same thing happened with uh, local TV, with Sinclair News. And so I think a lot of voters are just genuinely confused, and there's just incredible disillusionment, both sides, like right-wing, left-wing, whatever. Everybody is disillusioned. Nobody trusts anyone. Nobody trusts any politicians. And just incredible frustration. But I am encouraged, though, by uh, last week's, God, it wasn't last week, it was two days ago, but in Trump time, it was like country. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the election on Tuesday, uh, the fact that, that Cori Bush won, um, you know, and that a lot of other progressive um, and, you know, black female candidates uh, were able to win. We also had an election with paper ballots. Um, I think that that's very important. I've had a lot of questions about the integrity of the Missouri system. And so, for once, our candidates actually did match our ballot initiatives preference this time. Like, we voted to expand Medicaid. Um, you know, that was a, a more narrow win. So maybe we're moving in a more uh, coherent direction. But, yeah, I mean, we're, we're a mess. And it mostly just comes down to, to dark money and bad actors and no transparency. People not able to see, you know, where is their information coming from? Who funds my candidate? On whose behalf is the candidate acting? You know, those right. are all questions that we have a great deal of trouble answering here. Well, and you you talked about this term networked authoritarianism in the book and just sort of using digital tools now, social media and things like that to sort of manipulate facts, right? Like there's there's a huge disinformation campaign that's separate from any traditional media outlets or, you know, direct election rigging that's literally just happening in in people's Twitter mentions right now, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, that term that was coined by Rebecca McKinnon, who's a social scientist, uh, and I think she started writing about this in, like, 2008, looking at authoritarian regimes and how it's actually advantageous for them to leave the Internet open, to not censor it, so that they could just bombard you with propaganda and false narratives and all this stuff. And I think that, um, you know, people like Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, other in Trump's camp and Trump himself, they understand this almost, um, you know, intuitively. Like, they, they get it, and they certainly did that in 2016. And that was another issue, you know, for Missouri and for everywhere is voters, you know, who used to have a local newspaper, you know, written by people who lived in their community, uh, people who they might even know in real life, 
Instead, we're getting a lot of information through memes on Facebook and Twitter. And it's very difficult to kind of sort through all of that. Like, I do it for a living. You know, I'm online all the time, and it's my job. And I have trouble. So I'm thinking if you're working like a regular, you know, eight hour a day job and then just sort of, you know, trying to figure out, well, what happened today? You know, and going on Facebook, going on Twitter, watching uh, television, you're not going to get the truth. You know, you're going to get weird little bits and pieces that you're going to try to put into a hole. And that problem has gotten much worse in the last four years because we have an administration that lies about everything and, you know, offers no documentation on things like public health policy and so forth. But yeah, I think that's been a huge problem. And I think, you know, not not to sound rude, but for older people especially, I think they're having trouble uh, discerning facts from fantasy. And it goes back to, you know, how they were brought up where you have three networks and they think, well, if something's on TV or if something is printed in, you know, this online news site, it must be true because if it wasn't true, then it wouldn't have been allowed to run. Like they, right. they assume a degree of vetting that has just been gone for about 20 years. And I'm not sure all of them realize that. I do think people kind of realize that much more now. But what it's turned into is just complete distrust of everything, and, you know, which is what I wrote about Uzbekistan like 10 years ago. That's how their society operates, where absolutely nothing is considered trustworthy. And unfortunately, that leads to almost credulity because it means anything is possible. Right. Um, any of it could be true, potentially. And that's just disastrous uh, for any, you know, functional democracy. Yeah. And, and speaking of Uzbekistan, you had mentioned uh, this group. Is it Acromia? Is that how you say it? Like, Acromia, yeah, yeah. This terrorist group that was essentially created by the state as as a propaganda tool that, you know, they were saying all these attacks were happening and it was it was this group that was responsible for it. And in fact, it was all kind of made up. And it it made me think of Antifa of just like, I don't know anybody that's in Antifa, quote unquote. I've never like gotten an email from them. Like it, to me, it's it's just this kind of made up. T- I don't even really understand what it means <laughs> beyond an abbreviation for anti-fascist. But there seem to be people, again, kind of Fox News viewers and stuff that really think there's a threat from Antifa and Antifa is going to come take over their town tomorrow. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the the minute I saw the rhetoric on that, I thought of Acromia and I thought of the way that, you know, the Uzbek government just created in advance this uh, terrorist group that they then trotted out to try to justify their own state sanctioned um, or state-operated massacre of civilians. And, I mean, it's it's insane to me that, like, you know, baseline Antifa definition is anti-fascist. And now under Trump's, you know, American autocracy, to be anti-fascist is to be anti-American. Right. And, you know, that, that that's just so crazy to me that, you know, opposing fascism is now this subversive, unpatriotic uh, thing to do. It's actually a great indicator you're, you know, living in a, a rising fascist society. And so, yeah, I, I am very worried about how they're going to you know, expand that definition, you know, they uh, issued that executive order that was very broad um, in designating uh, Antifa as a terrorist group. And now they're just picking out different protesters and critics and saying, you know, you're an Antifa and, you know, you're guilty of this crime and you're a terrorist. It is is exactly the same as what I saw um, in Uzbekistan, as what Russia did. And of course, you know, we have a um, a history of this in the United States. I mean, I think especially recently after 9-11 of the government targeting just random Muslim people um, and designating them as terrorists. This is a very Islamophobic regime. This is a very anti-black regime. And they're really honing in on um, Black Lives Matter activists uh, in this regard. And it's something we should all be worried about because it's not just a matter of them saying it on Fox News or as propaganda, they're trying to write laws, you know, and that law is going to be used to criminalize freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, uh, political opposition under the guise of this, you know, very vague, very sweeping Antifa banner. Um, And so that's something, I mean, I'm kind of like, I've seen some of the Democrats speak out about it, but to me, it's like, you know, a red light is flashing because if Trump has a second term, then I think all sorts of people are going to be accused of crimes they didn't commit just because they find those people uh, inconvenient actors. Yeah, no, totally. I, I want to ask just a couple of kind of personal things to to end this on. But you talk in the book about receiving death threats. And that was sort of my first reaction in, in reading this was like, 
you know, you're, you're kind of unmasking these Russian oligarchs and tracing the money. And, you know, I would feel very nervous putting that out there. And I just wonder sort of how you how you deal with that as as a function of having to do your job. I mean, it sucks. Like there's nothing there's nothing good about it. It's, it's more common than people realize, um, you know, you sometimes sort of see how common this is, like during the impeachment hearings where all the witnesses had to have armed security. You know, you've seen it at hearings like for Manafort and Stone, where the judges uh, got death threats, the jury got death threats. And so, you know, death threats are just part of my life, um, stalkers as well. Unfortunately, you know, it's been going on since before Trump, because um, I was outspoken on a variety of issues, but there's certain issues that really seem to get under people's skin. Uh, you know, mostly anything having to do with the Russian mafia, with the finances, uh, with Jeffrey Epstein, um, that is definitely one. Like, I can tell when something is about to break in that story because, uh, you know, occasionally it's, it's personal threats that I receive offline, but online there'll be like this horde of Twitter bots being like, you know, Sarah Kenzier is, and then just fill in the blank, like mm. a Soros operative, uh, you know, a secret Kremlin agent, a Republican, like whatever. And then it's just block her, block her, block her. Don't believe anything she says. And then like next day, like Jillian Maxwell will be arrested. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's so that's what that was wow. about. Like they don't want the public to see what I've uncovered about that operation and how it relates to Trump, yeah. I think. And so, and it's not just me. I mean, they do this to a lot of people, like different journalists, uh, activists, public officials even. It's not always successful because it's very hard to kind of silence me or others completely when we have these platforms, which is one of the reasons I, I would wonder if uh, Twitter, much like TikTok, um, may be you know, going under under some sort of pretext uh, to control free speech. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a frightening thing. It's not how I want to live my life. You know, I have kids and if we weren't under a pandemic with them home with me all the time, I'd be, you know, I think I'd be very, very worried. That's how I, I was for the years before. Like every day I'd be waiting for that school bus, like, okay, okay, you know, they're yeah. still here. And you don't want to think like that as a parent. And obviously, you know, my kids are getting older, so they're sort of catching on as to who I am and that, you know, people know who I am. And that's like strange for them because, you know, I'm so lame. They're <laughs> <laughs> just so ordinary in their eyes. So they're like confused when like a famous person is talking to me or something. Um, you know, but one thing I kind of don't want them to know about are the extent of these threats. They obviously know about them because we've had to leave the house a few times and they've seen me react, but I don't want them to grow up, you know, afraid for me, afraid for themselves, anything like that. Like I really try to protect them and it's only so much longer, you know, I can do that now that especially my oldest is a teenager. So, you know, she's going to find out eventually. Yeah. Right. Well, so it, it sounds like it goes beyond just sort of like harassing language and stuff, which unfortunately kind of comes with the territory of being a public figure these days. But yeah. it, it, like it's you, you've really felt like your life is in danger at points, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mentioned in the book that back in 2016, like I was assigned a bodyguard, yeah. like at an international conference, because there were people uh, associated with Trump's operation with the Kremlin and with different, uh, you know, mafia linked international actions there. Like I had to have, you know, I was staying at a hotel, like the chef had to make my food separately. And, you know, I, I couldn't eat in public functions. Wow. I had to have this bodyguard with me. I had never experienced anything like that. And it's also something that, you know, I can't afford. Right. I mean, like, I, I don't know whether to reveal that. I mean, it's probably very obvious. Like, I, you know, I'm a writer. I'm not like a billionaire. Um, but, you know, it was for a few days, at least, I felt kind of safe. But it was also just like, how is this my life? Like, this is insane. Like, this is completely nuts. And the rest of the time, you know, I just try to use what precautions I can. But one thing that's been really sad and really frustrating is that there's absolutely no one to whom I can turn or who others, you know, whistleblowers, journalists, what have you, can turn when threatened by this government. No one will do anything. They are all too afraid or they're just overwhelmed themselves or I don't know. But sort of that realization in 2016, uh, you know, Andrea has expressed it as well. And we're like, wow, we're we're just alone in this. Like yeah. it's us and we have to have each other's backs. And I guess that's just the way our life is going to go for a while. And, you know, we keep hoping uh, the tide will turn, but it hasn't yet. Well, and I guess that's sort of where I want to end it is just sort of thinking about, you know, it's easy to get in despair, I guess, thinking about the situation that we're in. And, 
you know, just realizing there, there was this great progressive wave in 2018 that, that went into Congress and, and it felt like there might be some action there. But as long as Mitch McConnell is in charge of the Senate and there's a, a Republican majority there, it's, legislatively, things aren't really going to get through. And then, you know, Trump has packed the courts now. So judicially, you know, we're kind of fucked there. It's like, I, where where do you get hope, I guess? Like, wh- what do you what do you see is how do we get out of this mess? What does that look like? And and how do us as regular citizens get there? We're going to be in this mess, you know, to some degree for a long time. And I think there's just a matter of like, how do you as an individual process it or deal with it or find coping mechanisms to live through it? And honestly, you know, one thing I always recommend besides just knowing our own history as Americans is, you know, read the histories of authoritarian states and read the works of journalists. Uh, and others from those states who continued, you know, speaking out, who, who protected their individuality, their creativity, what have you. It's a very difficult situation, and it's a very difficult way to live. Uh, I do think, you know, there's the possibility of changing things. You know, I was hopeful when Elizabeth Warren was running because uh, I thought her plans were good, and yeah. I think that whoever gets in should use those plans. Like, you know, I do like Warren, but it's not about the individual. It's about, you know, the mechanisms uh, to get to change. But one of the main things people need to do, you know, and that Warren does do, is be very honest about the severity of the crisis and name names and say, you know, this is how it happened, and this is a situation we're in, and not sugarcoat anything, not pin everything on an individual like Mueller or an election or anything right. like that. Just assume that all the institutions are going to fail. Assume that everyone's corrupt. And then think, well, what other ways do we have around this? On a personal level, you know, I, I wrote that essay back in 2016 where I told people, you know, write down who you are and what you value and what you wish for and, like, hang on to that. You know, hang on to who you are with everything you have because this is going to change you. Um, and that's that's inevitable to a degree, but you can try to it off. That's where people just cannot give in is inside. Uh, you know, when they get in your mind, when they shape your behavior, uh, when you obey and advance, you know, that's when they've really won. When they conquer the court system and, you know, the uh, the government, that, that's not as bad as if they can get, you know, into your psyche, into your consciousness and really change like who you are and what you value and what you stand for. Like, that's the biggest danger. And people can actually control that. They can control how they treat other people. Um, they can control how they process uh, events and, and so on. So I encourage people to just stay strong in that regard and don't just uh, don't accept any of this. It's going to happen, but don't accept it as normal or good. Yeah. And I loved reading um, the, the epilogue for your book, too, about sort of going on road trips with your kids and wanting to show them kind of all these great American sites with the idea that they might not be there, or at least in the same state. And and I saw you tweeted about that recently of just sort of it's taken on new meaning in, in this time of pandemic. And like, you know, thank God you did that, because it just it, it's such an essential part of who we are. And it made me want to, you know, as soon as this is over, want to take my kids out and, and show them some of those historic sites and, you know, just sort of, yeah, build that identity that, that I feel fortunate kind of having grown up with of, you know, equality and, and just, yeah, the, the the things that I value as an American, wanting to give those onto my children and, and not letting that die, not letting that get crushed in this time. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the, the hardest things about the pandemic for me, of course, is being constrained in this way and sort of wondering, like, oh, my God, like, well, not only can I not do this, but will these places remain after, you know, yeah. these historic sites, these national parks? Because we know that Trump and his cohort want to either shut them down or, uh, you know, drill into them or exploit them in some way. But, um, you know, so it's like you end up looking even more inward now, you know, like recommending books or, you know, just trying, I don't know, to just sort of treasure like what's left. Like it's like, okay, no more national parks and state parks now, you know? And so I'm like constantly trying, you know, to educate them and to uh, make them aware of not just the bad. I mean, especially for my oldest, because she's, she's so keyed into what's going on with, you know, all the protests and with Trump. And so I, you know, it's funny. It's like people laugh at these conversations because I'm always just encouraging her to not be like, you know, anti-American and people who think I'm like so dark and gloomy. I'm like, no, there are good things about this country, you know, and I sound so almost old fashioned, but I want her to know 
you know, the, the good along with the bad and that the good comes, you know, with a hard fought battle, you know, the good is rarely just handed to people here. You know, you, you fight against bad people and, and you win it. Um, otherwise they're going to shake you down for all you got. And, you know, that's a horrible lesson to have to learn, but, uh, you know, I think it's one that's, uh, deeply necessary for not just my kid, but uh, people in Congress and people who should really know better. All right. Sarah Kenzier. You know, I uh, I do feel optimistic after that, don't you? Or at least I feel ready to, uh, to get involved, realizing that this is not going to be easy, but we all have a role to play in this, and we all need to take action. And uh, we need to figure out what world we want for our children, what we want this country to look like, what we want this country to be. And we've got to stand up for that and keep fighting for that. Never let go of that feeling. Sarah's book, Hiding in Plain Sight, is available wherever you get books. Also check out The View from Flyover Country. It's a couple years old, but it is still a very good read. And of course, her podcast, Gaslit Nation, with Andrea Chalupa, is available wherever you listen to podcasts. So go check that out as well. All right, that is it for me today. I will have a new show on Thursday, talking to the PBS chef Lydia Bastianich. That is a very exciting conversation. I hope you'll come back for that. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Drop me a line. And uh, until Thursday, stay safe. <laughs>